Welcome one and all. We're back. It's Hit Factory. Aaron's here. Carly's here. We've got our Wild Cherry Diet Pepsi. We've got our Blackjack Gum. Uh, and we're joined today by a very special guest. It is the pop culture critic Roxana Haddadi on the show. Welcome, Roxana. Thank you, guys. I wish that I knew to bring Andy Cap's Hot Fries, the premier <laughs> nighty snack. Oh, my God. I have not had those in a long a time. A long, long time. So good. Yeah. All the sodium you need for like a year. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) All in just one little fry-shaped vessel that's perfect. Mm -hmm. Roxana, um, where can where can people find your work? You're because you're in a lot of places. Uh, yeah, I am in a lot of places. Um, you can find me um mostly at Pajiba, Crooked Marquee, the AV Club, and every so often at Vulture. I've been looking back at Freaks and Geeks for them. So just a lot of places on the internet. Love awesome. That. Love it. Yeah. yeah. We, uh, I guess a little bit of backstory. We're, we're glad to finally make this happen. We've endured some, some trials and travails along the way. We reached out to you initially at the, be- at the end of last year, because you wrote an excellent piece about um, Naoki and incest uh, in regards to the Godfather part three. Inspired. Or the Godfather coda, um, the death of Michael Corleone, I guess, as it's now called. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, in our conversation, sort of found our way to pump up the volume, which is the topic of today's discussion. Yes. Um, now, this is a film that at the time that you suggested it, neither Carly or I uh, had seen or, or much heard of, but it uh, was apparently a, a pretty formative film for you. Would you mind just talking a little bit about that? Yes, um, I am nodding vigorously. Um, <laughs> it was very formative for me. It's one of those movies where I don't really remember when or where I saw it. I'm sure it was a Saturday afternoon UPN <laughs> rerun at some point in my prepubescence. Um, it came out in 1990, so I saw it at some point after that. Um, and my boyfriend and I joke that it's like the original leftist podcast movie. Um <laughs> Oh, we'll get there. We will talk about that. (laughs) But um, I don't know. I mean, rewatching it, I just think that it resonated with me because there is a lot of frustration there. And I remember being a really angry kid and I feel like it just tapped into like how misunderstood and ignored I felt at that time. And on the flip side, I do think it's one of those things that unlike some other movies that I love, like I love the John Hughes movies, I love a lot of movies of that time, it doesn't necessarily feel like it has aged that much because it is still still talking about like adolescent alienation and still talking about a lot of the stuff that we're still dealing with now in terms of like economy, school standards, and just this general divide between older and younger generations that I think we always see play out, mm-hmm. but that still feels relevant today. And just Christian Slater's really hot in it. I mean, I don't oh. know. <laughs> it's so tasty. Yeah. It's delicious. It's a scrum, scrumptiliumptious man. Yeah, there's a lot of like really like thoughtful, like evocative stuff I can say. And then also he's just really hot in it. So yeah, I think that's, I think it's okay to like be thoughtful and evocative and also to like, objectify Christian Slater briefly. Yeah, I think it's I think okay. Fine. Yeah, it's actually <laughs> a win for the matriarchy. So 
But fellas, like there's plenty here for you as well because we get <laughs> uh, very gorgeous Samantha Mathis in this as well. Like She's stunning. I have, like I said, had not seen this film until very recently. Had I seen it in my youth, I would have been obsessed with with this character of Nora De Niro. She's beautiful and like kind of punk rock and edgy and weird and yeah, uh, she's 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 there for the guys in the audience. Right. I agree with you, Roxana, that the the movie has aged really well, um, especially when I was standing it up to some of the other films that you reference in your piece about it on on Crooked Marquee and also kind of looking at other adjacent movies at the time that like, you know, kind of have that same uh, Moyle also did, as you referenced, Empire Records, uh, Empire Records mm-hmm. right? And even that movie feels a little dated, not necessarily because of the technology, but because the kind of like, animus of the anti-establishment gears that are turning in that movie just feel kind of feckless whereas this this movie feels a little bit deeper it feels a little bit um it feels like it goes a little bit further there are i think some problems with like how literate it is in sort of collective action which we can get into but first of all to take a step back thank you for introducing me to this movie (laughs) I had never heard of it. I was very surprised that I had never heard of it because I too, like you, am a very fierce Christian Slater fan. And uh, in sort of learning about some of the structural problems of like the marketing of the movie and like the licenses related, I see why it may have, you know, passed past me, but I'm so grateful for you introducing it to me because I just had such a tremendous time watching it. And then diving into the story and the matrix of the movie made the movie that much more fascinating. So that's my like just jacking you off moment for a second. Because <laughs> I'm very I'm honored so, by that. Thank you. I'm so glad she recommended this. Like no, it, was, it was it was a really fabulous experience. It was a great watch. Um, and that actually reminds me that we should talk about um, something at the top of the hour here before we get too deep into it is just uh, this film's complete lack of availability. Um, and how that is changing very, very soon. Um, you know, the the soundtrack, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well, is definitely one of the the high points of the film, but also probably the curse of the movie in terms of licensing issues um, and its availability on streaming platforms. So um, by the time this episode is released, thankfully, there will be a, a reissue of the Blu-ray uh, courtesy of Warner Brothers. Ideally, that means that it might wind up on HBO Max streaming service at some point, Mm -hmm. um, but we will have to wait and see on that front. But by any means, when this hits your ears, Hit Factory listeners, you will actually be able to find a readily available physical copy of this movie, and you will get a chance to watch it, which was (laughs) more than we could say when we were finding it and tracking it down (laughs) uh, for this episode. Um, But it, it works out now that we're doing it here at the end of the month. It's perfect. Uh, um, the food poisoning worked out beautifully. The food poisoning worked out <laughs> Everything came together. <laughs> Timing, universe, you That's did it. Right. Uh, here we are. I think that before we get into too much meat, I, I do want to talk about Christian Slater um, and, and allow ladies, for you all to just riff on the beauty and the magnificence that is him, but also talk about where he was in his career at this point, because this was sort of part of a trifecta of 
Christian Slater roles where he was sort of at at peak marketability. He was at his finest and probably like three of his most formidable roles in his entire career. Of course, Heather's, this film, uh, and then Tony Scott's True Romance in 1993, which we've also done on the show very recently. So check that one out. Um, but yeah, let's just talk. Let's just swim in the beautiful, luxurious pool that is uh, a late 80s, early 90s Christian Slater. For Guide us, Roxana. Well, yeah. So as you guys mentioned, I did sort of write about this and his appeal in an essay I did for Crooked Marquis about Broken Arrow. But it's so interesting going back to the 90s because we were living in a very bad boy heavy time. <laughs> like it felt like there was a bad boy of every flavor. Um, because there was Leo, there was Mark Wahlberg, there were like the TV bad boys in terms of like Luke Perry, RIP, and early pre-cult Jared Leto. Um, <laughs> but, but it really feels like Christian Slater sort of was like the or like the top figure of that. And you know, I still not to say that I I don't understand why, because like I find him incredibly charming and very sort of world wary and i think mm. that combination works really well but like he wasn't as pretty as leo really i mean he didn't have the like authentic i'm a criminal vibe of mark Wahlberg. <laughs> um like i just think that he i think he really benefited from the fact that he was working a lot in that time like it seemed like he worked non-stop for like four years mm -hmm. and I think that at that time we sort of were transitioning from as a culture like the John Hughes sort of charming but a little saccharine all you need is love teen movie vibes and I think we were transitioning into something more subversive and a little more willing to be like, actually, this is all fucked up. And I think that Christian Slater's ability to be very bemused at things served him really well. Because, like, yes, in Heathers, he is very much just doing sort of a Jack Nicholson impression that he does very well. But then I think by the time he gets to pump up the volume and true romance, he has developed enough of his own flair that it's not just like Nicholson ticks anymore. And I just feel like he was like the crown prince of the counterculture. Like I, I've been trying to track down that sassy that he was on the cover on and I cannot find it for the life of me. And it makes me really upset because I really want to own it. <laughs> But, um, I didn't even know that that was a thing. I didn't existed. even know that either. Oh, but he yeah, was I mean, obviously on a sassy. Yeah, he was obviously <laughs> on a sassy. He was on a cover, and I have been scoring Etsy like there's no tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I just think that he he really captured something, you know, like a sense of stepping back and looking at the world and being like, no, there is something wrong here. I think he did that really well. And I think... You know, like the movies we've talked about, he was in those. He and Samantha Mathis were also the main voices of Fern Gully, which I think was also... No. Yes. Because okay. they did three movies together. They did Pump of the Volume, they did Fern Gully, and they did Broken Arrow. Right. Yeah. So Fern Gully, again, yeah, Fern Gully <laughs> for like millennials and like Gen X was also like such a formative, like, oh, hey, we're destroying the world. <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. movie. So it's just funny to see him like in so much of this and then interview with the vampire when River Phoenix died. That's how mm-hmm. Christian Slater got the reporter role. So it just felt like he was everywhere in that time. And ultimately, like, I don't want to diminish the fact that, like, he sort of catapulted his own career with his own actions in terms of, like, beating up a girlfriend and having problems with drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. But, like, there was a solid, nearly decade-long stretch where he was the guy. And he, I think the interesting thing that's happened with his image, and I think some of that has kind of turned around and come undone, but... I definitely remember a period in my life when I was like super into him and was seeing him everywhere, as you said, and then somehow became socialized to understand that he was like the butt of a joke. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know what time precisely that happened, but I definitely remember like a cultural shift when we, as a movie watching public, decided we didn't like him anymore. Maybe it was like after that incident in um it's a very same famous incident in 1997 I think it was when he like the police came and he was like beating someone up or I don't remember the um specifics but I feel like after that there was this kind of like oh yeah Christian Slater like not you know we didn't have the same kind of devotion to him um and and now you know through decades later of his own recovery and sobriety and like getting some really great roles on, um, you know, Mr. Robot, which you mentioned also in that Crooked Marquee piece and, and him getting to kind of quote earlier versions of him, I think has really helped to remind everyone like this man is talented and charismatic and, and, you know, time I think has also helped to wash away some of the, the criticisms and kind of like taboo-ness around him. Right. And like, I enjoy him very much. Like he has been in so many of my favorite movies. And so I'm glad to see him back. But I do sort of have like a double edged feeling about that. I think the unfortunate reality is that we are very quick to let nostalgia be our guiding force. And so I think that I love Mr. Robot and I think he's the best part of Mr. Robot by far, Mm -hmm. but I think enough years passed that, like you said, we sort of dropped the like, Oh, Christian Slater. And now it's like, Oh, Christian Slater, you know, like it sort of turned the corner. Mm -hmm. I don't, I also think that he sort of benefited from the fact that like the things that he did were not great, like beating up a girlfriend, obviously bad. And he had been sued another point by another ex-girlfriend. So I think he definitely had a messy, sometimes violent personal life but i also think as we see a lot in hollywood like people's memories for that kind of thing can be very short Mm -hmm. and i think unless you are like a weinstein level monster i think people are a little interested in forgiving and forgetting and moving on and so i think christian slater it felt like you said like he was sort of banished into tv pilot roles Mm -hmm. for like 20 years and like direct to dvd stuff for a long time and then i think with mr robot it was a reminder of like oh yeah he's great and then it sort of became easier to like look past the other stuff but like 1000 so yeah i mean like i feel bad about that like i don't think any of us feel good about that but i also (laughs) think it's like 
I also think you see his work in Mr. Robot. And like you said, like he has been very open about like his sobriety journey and all that stuff. And I think sometimes you have to ask yourself, like at what point does somebody deserve or earn a second chance? So Mm -hmm. those are all like big overarching questions, but just in terms of his career, like Mr. Robot works so well because he does seem to be the hard Harry character and JD from Heathers and his character from true romance. Like he is returning to that, like, burn it all down energy and he's so good at that he that is. i think sam esmail was perfect in that casting choice mm-hmm. totally agree with you mm-hmm. especially on the you know what you said earlier about how he has this uncanny knack to s- sort of carry the weight of the world on him and not have it feel uh like he's forcing it in any way you said one thing that was really interesting that i want to i want to come back to this impetus to like uh you know fall into nostalgia and let that sort of wash away past like horrors or um you know violations of some sort i think is a thing that a lot of people are feeling right now in a lot of different spheres of our society not just in you know art and media and television and cinema and sort of popular culture. But I also think like politics as well. Like there's a lot of that happening right now. This kind of return to, you know, like Joe Biden's been in, uh, in the government for 40 years and we're like going back to a Joe Biden era (laughs) democratic party, it seems. It's the entire impetus for this show. In fact, (laughs) totally. (laughs) there's like a, there's a larger thesis statement that we often come back to, uh, agnostic of Biden and his and his presidency, which is that precisely what you're saying, this this like draw that we have to nostalgia, particularly as Gen Xers and millennials who own and operate a lot of popular media and popular opinion and the structures of our society, that it's it's a really attractive drug to um, kind of like make you feel like everything is okay when you really know that it isn't. Um, and I think that's a really good segue for us to talk about, you know, the message of this movie, because that definitely comes up in this film. Uh, yeah, we can get into now pump up the volume and specifically hard Harry, AKA happy Harry hard on AKA Mark Hunter, AKA, AKA Christian Slater. <laughs> good Winston Bishop. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, um, so- but uh, Roxana, do you want to, because you've you've written many words on this, maybe give us uh, uh, just sort of a brief like back of the box synopsis of Pump Up the Volume for for people who uh, have not seen the movie or are having or waiting on their Blu-ray to arrive in the mail. <laughs> yeah, I am also waiting on my Blu-ray. Honestly, it's been here by now, so I'm a little upset. Um, but yeah, so the general synopsis of this film, and you can sort of get a sense of where we're going from his many aliases is that Mark Hunter is a high school student whose father works in like school administration. And so they move to this very small suburb outside of Phoenix because his dad gets a job with the school system there. Um, And he is by day, this very shy lonely teenager who sort of hides behind his glasses and his plaid shirts and doesn't really talk to anybody Mm -hmm. um, and just sort of observes what's happening at this school. And then by night, he runs a pirate radio show out of his basement um, with the alias Hard Harry. And 
he really is a study in contrasts, which I think benefits Slater, who has always been very good at balancing sort of like a smarmy, sort of snarky vibe with a very noticeable possibility for intensity. So Mm -hmm. I think those two things are balanced very well. But in terms of the film, so he is running this radio show in which he is talking about sort of the disaffected vibe of Gen X and how a lot of, so many iconic lines from this, um, (laughs) just in terms of like, you know, he said things like, do you ever get the feeling that everything in America is fucked up and that they don't everyone else has lived through things that Gen X is never going to live through. And just this very cynical, almost nihilistic vibe. Like why bother trying or doing anything? And I think that he sort of realizes some of the flaw in his own messaging when it turns out that there is sort of this possibility of a, that teenagers could kill themselves after listening to his show, um, which hits him very hard and makes him sort of wonder, okay, so like, where does my nihilism lead? Mm -hmm. And then the second part of that is that he and a listener and classmate played by Samantha Mathis, who plays his classmate, Nora, realize that there's something going on at the school that is not right. Like, too many kids are getting expelled or too many kids are getting suspended. It seems like the principal is sort of playing this numbers game in terms of trying to keep their school ranking up. And as a result, students are suffering. So he sort of is trying to do two things at once. He's trying to navigate what does he actually feel like as a teenager right now in a world where it seems like nobody understands him. And then the flip side of that is what is actually going on at the school and what can he now as somebody who has sort of developed a cult following, like what can he actually do to change things? So I think sort of like Heather's, it is playing with this idea of everything about being a teenager is awful, but what can you actually do about it? And sort of like, what are the limits of what you should do about it? Um, And I think it walks that line really well. I do think, like you said, there's some messiness in terms of like its overall messaging about what to do about it. And I do sort of think that I I sort of respect the abruptness of the ending. (laughs) Um, Yes. (laughs) Because it just, I mean, we'll get to that. But in terms of the plot, I feel like it is very much setting up like this small idea of well I don't want to say small because it's like our identities but like this one idea of like who are you and what do you want to do and who do you want to be and then who is trying to stop you from being that person Mm -hmm. and how do you you know act in the face of that yeah it the message like you said you know it it uh I think goes a lot further than some of these kind of 90s fuck the system movies um, where so many of these things are are sort of responses to, you know, this sort of 90s neoliberal takeover, this sort of end of history era where uh, everything is good and fine and like kind of cor- corporate culture reigns supreme. Everybody's um, happy. What's the problem? Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I mean, you see all of these sort of uh, ideals of, of neoliberal, like 90s society reflected in a lot of the institutional players within the school itself. Um, you see the complicit kind of like powerful people in like Mark's parents, you know, who 
Uh, his father explicitly says multiple times, like, don't rock the boat while you're in it. And uh, yeah, you know, so many of these 90s movies, you you see people uh, kind of rallying against uh, societal norms and expectations as like a, a profound and like romantic display or, you know, just like saving themselves and their friends from the man. Um, and, and this one actually goes a little bit further than that and addresses sort of like the societal rot or the societal corruption in, in a certain uh, sense with with the principal and and her malfeasance malfeasances that's a fun word to say <laughs> but at the same time too yeah you know the the ending sort of seems to fall on uh this sort of like uh fervent defense of the opportunity to oppose the system instead of giving like a clear outline of of ways in which to mobilize against it right it's it's all about the idea of you know, sort of this like free speech argument we have today, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the opportunity to have sort of unfettered oppositional reactionary kind of commentary on society at large and uh, and the way that those ideals can't really be suppressed, that they that they blossom and bloom and, and inspire actual actors, i.e., um, you know, the, the cool teacher whose whose name escapes me. I think Miss Miss Emerson, I think is her name. Something like that, yeah. Who who is the, the person who inevitably, you know, does reveal the corruption and and brings up uh you know this all the things that the principal is doing wrong to the proper authorities right so all, all of those sort of uh all those institutional reforms and corrections are still happening very much inside of the organizational structure while being somewhat inspired and pressured by the outside but uh, but you know in that sense I, like like i said i think it goes a little bit further um, than some of these nice movies do, including, you know, Empire Records, which Moyle did a handful of years after this. So for that, I, I commend it. I give it a lot of credit. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I too, I think I, I just really like how abruptly it ends, you know, this sort of like fist pumping, like talk hard, uh, thrown in the back of a paddy wagon. And uh, I even ahead. had to ask him, I was like, am I remembering correctly that this movie ended in a freeze frame? And he was like, no, it didn't. Mm -hmm. But it feels like it does. It, it feels, feels like, like it does. does. Yeah. And I respect it because exactly like you guys said, like, I also love Empire Records. Like, it is sort of this movie's goofy cousin in terms of <laughs> sort of finding, like, some more joy in friendship than I think Pump Up the Volume does. I don't think Pump Up the Volume ever makes the suggestion that, like, you're doing this for your friends, which I sort of appreciate. Like, I like that it is more like, no, you're doing this because, like, the system is fucked up. And as an individual, you have a responsibility and therefore an opportunity to do something about it. But you're right that Empire Records just sort of ends. I love it. But it ends with them saving the store. And it's like, all right, you guys did good for yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> right. You saved your store. Yep. For sure. Yeah. Whereas like Pump with the Volume, yeah, it does end with this sort of talk hard, like you can do this message. And at least my assumption was always like he is going to get punished for this. Mm -hmm. Like there isn't an ending where he sort of like gets away with it. And in a lot of ways, it sort of reminds me of Hackers. Hackers, again, has sort of a happier ending than this in terms of like, like you said, it ends with like their romantic date and like all of this, like, yeah, we saved the world and now we're in love sort of thing. But hackers does also sort of flirt with the idea that like, no, it is like the government and private industry and all of these forces colluding together to harm us. And it sort of sidesteps. How do you fix that? Mm -hmm. by ending with like one moment of collective action and then also like a love story. I like the pump up the volume 
doesn't really think about the love story by the end. Mm-hmm. It is just the fact that, like, yeah, he's going to get punished for this, and you all can follow in his footsteps and risk it as well. But there's not a guaranteed happy ending there, which I sort of respect. I agree. And I liked that I was... um I wasn't quite sure where it was going to go with his capture. Mm-hmm. And I like that it just sort of like, we assume that he gets carted off and as you said, is punished in some way. And that it ends with all of the, you know, sort of myriad voices coming in on their own pirate radio frequencies, picking up where he left off. And um, and that that is like a, a glimmer of collective action, mm-hmm. more so than what you know we see in these other movies that you're referencing but i still feel like this movie like a lot of movies in the 90s and just sort of mainstream conversations in the 90s at large aren't literate in the ways in which the system is fucked up like we're able to say this sucks and there's monotony and there's, you know, this sort of like sanitization and we're feeling that we're feeling the angst and we're feeling the unrest, but we're not able to articulate the, you know, the sort of structures of oppression. Um, We can identify actors who are manifesting that oppression in some way, shape or form and cancel them ostensibly. Um, But we can't, we can't speak to, you know, the sort of larger sy- systemic powers at work and also imagine an alternative, right? The, right? the like most revolutionary that we can get is rhetoric, a rhetoric of critique, not one of like an imagined alternative or, um, you know, uh, collective action beyond critique, right? Like that it sort of stops there on this show previously, we've talked about Adam Curtis, who is a documentary filmmaker and has like made this very beautiful argument that I'm just going to totally butcher um, about hypernormalization and how sort of like in the 90s, without a real like organized left cohort to, you know, upend any structures of power, the best we can sort of do to express this animating impetus of like something being wrong is to express it in a critique of the system vis-a-vis art being made at the time. And that, you know, the artists and the actors and the, the sort of people in media are the mouthpieces for this larger cultural feeling of malaise and unrest. But that's like as far as we go, it's 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 a proxy for action, but it's not action, right? It's sort of fetishizing the idea of a revolutionary spirit, but that's as far as it goes. And I I felt that way about this movie as much as I love this movie and feel like in context with the rest of, you know, uh, the sort of canon of this era, it definitely goes a lot further, but it still feels like it doesn't quite have the alphabet for what collective action looks like and what changes to the system's animating structures actually looks like. I think there is, a, like, first of all, so many things in that argument. That was like beautifully <laughs> laid out. I don't know why you thought you were going to butcher that. That was great. I kind of um, did, but thanks. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like there are like two things, there are like two threads here. Like one, absolutely that's what's happening in this film because 
how it ends, if I'm remembering correctly on my many rot well, you guys have watched it more recently but if i'm remembering correctly basically they agree that like the principal fucked up and like it was her bad and like if i recall she gets fired yeah and yeah and mark's dad is like we'll get somebody else who's good or whatever but there's no <laughs> fundamental discussion of how like public schools essentially operate at like the whim of federal funding mm -hmm. and right. that there is no real acknowledgement of the fact that like you are putting sort of a monetary value on how students succeed mm -hmm. and how that might be problematic which like we can see now like 30 years later upon like all you know we grew up with like standardized tests and like yes. all of these things that further equated how worthy we were of an education with like an arbitrary test score. But like pump up the volume doesn't really address that. It's just that like this one principal was acting badly herself within a system that is otherwise fine. So yeah, I do think it definitely does that in the same way that empire records was like, this one store deserves to be saved. Not that like the further, corporatization of music is the problem mm -hmm. but like right. this one store with this one kooky cast of employees deserves <laughs> so yeah even embry deserves to be saved he does i mean he really does like i love that movie <laughs> with does. my whole heart but yeah i mean that's what that is and so i think that when we talk about like the neoliberal agenda like to me it just feels very much like one of the core ideas of neoliberalism has always been like well you have the opportunity to say something and isn't that enough and like yeah a lot of the time it's like a no <laughs> <laughs> and b like you said it does make for a lot of these movies that sort of play within the same sandbox to varying degrees but never go far enough to tell you like this is so fucked up and this is what you can do to change it past just looking out for you and your friends mm -hmm. and i honestly don't know if we have any teen movies that have really addressed that super well and i feel like that's why pump up the volume as limited as it is still feels like it goes the furthest in that um because even hackers which i love and hackers is about right like banding with other hackers around the world again it's about taking down one bad guy who was misusing the system rather than analyzing well like well wall street exists so that a lot of bad people can use the system right <laughs> and you guys are just focusing on this one terrible guy played by fisher stevens so yeah i just think that so many of these movies that were our touchstones just don't go far enough and so christian slater at least on screen sort of mm -hmm. laying out all of our frustrations mm -hmm. still feels somewhat revolutionary yes. although it is still just that like well you got to say what you wanted aren't you happy yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah, yeah i mean it's even in like you know like the the syntax that we use around it, right? It's fuck the system, but it's often fight the man, right? Like it's right. it's an individual player oftentimes. And, and as you said, right? Like uh, this this film resolves itself by punishing the bad actor, you know, this this principal who is uh, stealing funding by, you know, removing students from from the roles or, or rather keeping students on the roles, but, but expelling them. 
um, but never addresses the fact that this person is doing this so that they can afford to run the school effectively the way that they think they need to, you know, like maybe there's something wrong with that because it, uh, you know, incentivizes people to mistreat or abuse the system in this way. Um, but you're both, uh, you know, kind of talking a little bit about something you already alluded to Roxana, which is, uh, you know, hard Harry and, and his pirate radio show as like a precursor to, podcasting um and this is the part where we get to talk about our complicity in this <laughs> whole thing as well you know of, of gratifying the problem rather than than mobilizing around a solution but um you know it's not an exact you know one-to-one -one comparison certainly but uh but we do see a lot of the same impetus being expressed even by uh you know what little collective left we have you know whether that is in, in the realm of podcasting or, or you know, bread tube uh, or, or if it's on Twitter. And it's, right. um, yeah, it's a fascinating thing to see that extension of the same malaise, the same frustration um, and, and the solidarity and the comfort we feel around the expression of that thing, but, but without uh, a sort of sense of order or, or direction as to how, how to stop it, you know, outside of canvassing for Bernie Sanders. Like there, there's not a lot that, that we have talked about collectively at a, at a large scale, what to do about these societal issues that plague us that we want to see changed. And um, yeah, here we are 30, 30 plus years on still talking about it in that way. I mean, it's also been socialized out of us, right? Like we haven't necessarily been educated by a system that's going to give us the tools to overthrow it, right? Um, this isn't like depression era America where like you have mass labor unionization and worker organization coming together to make really material demands on the people in power. Like we're, we've atomized our experience on the individual scale to the point that like, there isn't even any, a sense, any sense of like a collective anymore. Like people don't even like think class exists, which is, mm -hmm. you know, a problem in and of itself. And, and so I think like, you know, it doesn't surprise me that even today with, you know, a slightly more radicalized sect of the population and there being, you know, a, a bit of proliferation around more leftist ideas um, and the kind of democratizing of, of these conversations and access being made, you know, to more people and all that good stuff, there's still it, and I'm certainly guilty of this. Like there's still a fecklessness that I feel even in my own ability to like materialize that into action. And sometimes I think, you know, that's a problem of just like logistics of our current moment, it being what it is. But also I think we need to build those pathways societally, like organize on the ground in a lot of different ways in order to actually be able to mobilize any sort of, you know, movement that that can make real change. I feel like this is really hard because I think that we have all been very conditioned by fear and by this idea that, well, none of our ideas have validity anyway. So mm -hmm. why bother? At least speaking for myself, like I am just exhausted by that conversation and by the idea of like, well, Medicare for all won't work, so why try it? And $15 minimum wage won't work, so why try it? And it just feels like as part of the left, we are attacked 
more viciously by Democrats <laughs> yes. than yeah. by Republicans. Mm-hmm. So I think it just feels like these 30 years since this movie, like you said, like in some ways we absolutely have failed in terms of building a grassroots movement that speaks to all of this. But I also think that we've only gotten more stratified and divided since then. And it feels like the center cannot hold, but the center has so much weight in our culture that it feels like the things we say, like the things that we want, still poll positively and popularly and are still popular ideas but there is this fear and this reluctance to actually go after them because i think people are afraid of imagining a reality outside of the one we have created for ourselves Mm -hmm. i think it terrifies people to think well oh god well we would need to figure out medicare for all like we would need to figure out minimum wage like we the rich people wouldn't be as rich you know so i just think that like (laughs) I just think there's been very little movement in that time. And I also think it's very telling that like we only have someone like Bernie who has been willing to talk about these things, not to get into like strictly like Chapo territory, but it just (laughs) feels, you know, it just feels like there hasn't been that much of an ability for other people to say the things he said. So in some ways I'm hopeful for the possibility of the squad. And I think people like obviously AOC and Rashida and Ilhan are doing like super important work in terms of exacerbating these conversations and making them more public. Mm -hmm. But it also makes me incredibly tired to see something like, Congrats, AOC raised a couple million for Houston. I love that. That's great. You know what else should have happened? <laughs> the government should have just given them the money. <laughs> right. Yes. It, it shouldn't have happened yes. in the first place, right? right? The, so, the permission like, to deregulate right. should never have happened. Right. So I just, I don't know how we have those conversations with people who just will never see that side of it. Mm-hmm. So just speaking for myself, when I say like, I feel tired or like you said, like I sort of feel complicit in this is like at a certain point, I do feel like heart hard airy where I'm like, fuck it. Like, I don't know what to do. You know, like all I yeah. can do is critique how fucked up this is. And I don't know what other steps to take. So I think almost in this way, this movie sort of operates as like a, here's where we are. Mm. Where do we still need to go? Is it low key depressing that we haven't figured out in 30 years? Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. It's also high key depressing. It's, too. it's, yeah. it's de- yeah. all keys. Every key. All keys. Every key. Every key. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, you know, the film seems to kind of reckon with this too, like exactly what you're talking about, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, Harry's malaise finds a foothold because he has a platform for it. But, you know, in, in the, you know, in the sense of, of his, uh, his peer, this other student who calls, you know, who is suicidal and is thinking about ending it, they're both, you know, and this is one of like, it, it's one of those scenes where when we were watching the film, I was like, I can't believe this movie is actually like going here with mm. this. Um, because it, it still, you know, has a lot of, a lot of impact and power behind it today, you know, that, that they actually, that this kid, uh, you know, kills himself. I, I was completely expecting the, the alternative to that where, you know, Harry talks to this kid uh, out of suicide and and they find like you know resolve and and solidarity c- together 
Um, and then he's, you know, triumphed as this sort of hero by the student population. It doesn't happen that way at all, right? He actually sees, like you said, the the nature of his nihilism and the ways in which it can actually profoundly impact people who don't feel like they have those outlets, who don't feel like they have, um, you know, any sort of recourse against this the system that that just feels oppressive and dark and and lonely all the time. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the film sort of, you know, talks about that. I was interested to read that, uh, you know, Moyle actually, you know, got the inspiration for the character from a classmate of his in England, um, who was, you know, ha- hosting the sort of pirate radio show and, uh, and also took his own life, you know, shot himself. And um, yeah, you know, it, it it seems to reckon with that idea of this this malaise not having an outlet. It, it and we see it still, like you said today, you know, 30 years on, this idea that this depression finds finds many forms, um, and and so often, unfortunately, it does lead to profound alienation and and sort of this darkness of suicide, or you know, it it uh, is sort of a an inroad to the right, you know, it, it's it's a way for you know this this sort of white male alienation um, and and you know a society at large telling these people that they have nothing to feel alienated about, um, that they go to these places where they feel this sort of collective solidarity that are often, you know, at, at the expense of the, the, the most marginalized people in our, our society at large. It's, you know, all of these, these, uh, you know, groups who, who these people target, all the, all these groups that these people find as their enemies who aren't really their enemies. You know? right. um, it's like where and, your anger has nowhere to go. And so it goes everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this movie does make that point really well, where it's like, well, there are actually places that deserve your anger. And if you can channel them to that, then maybe you can get somewhere. Mm-hmm. But again, where are you getting and how do you get there? And I think right. those are the conversations that are still very hard for us to have. And that I, now I'm having a really hard time thinking about all these movies that I grew up with loving and realizing like, <laughs> oh, right, you do stop just short of saying that. Like I'm thinking of like Dead Poets Society, which I yes. also loved, but which ends again with like Robin Williams character being like tossed out of the school. And so it's like he has to be rejected for these kids to get like the encouragement to do what they want. But it's not like, no, dude, your school's fucked up. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. So totally. there's so many things where it's like, oh, man, like critical reassessment of all the texts that I loved. <laughs> Again, that's the show. That's, that's why yeah. we're here. <laughs> it's just, just ruining movies for people. Yeah. Um, I try not to ruin them because no. we do really love this movie and, and right. loved watching it. it it's such I, a great one. And it's helpful, I think, to understand what you're describing, Roxana, is like, the success of the neoliberal project, right? Like you are, you are articulating exactly, uh, you know, what the outcome is supposed to be, which is that we, we don't have these outlets. We don't have the literacy. We don't have any sort of imagination of an alternative. We can only see the world as it exists and kind of like operate on the cultural plane of, abortion rights and, uh, you know, transgender representation, representation, representation. I love and hate representation in equal measure. Representation is great. Also women shouldn't lead the CIA because there shouldn't be a CIA. Like, (laughs) like when it's, when it's weaponized, when representation is weaponized so cynically and strategically, that's when, you know, it's more than a problem, but 
you're also making me realize that I don't want to like thump our chests and be like, we're the voice of a generation. Like we're not. <laughs> All right, Lena. <laughs> I'm just like, it's Lena. like our moms. Uh, I know, seriously. Um, her mom also loves her work. Uh, but what you're making me realize is that there is something, there is some value in normalizing the conversations of dissent, right? Yes, like you I made the really great point of, that it's hard to even get people to like acknowledge the problems, let alone think of solutions for them or act on solutions for them. So I think you make a really good, a really good point that there is, you know, there is something to this, you know, if really all we can do right now is talk about the problems and that's, you know, as far as we're able to get on a given day, that's still, I think, doing the work that, um, like this movie was trying to do and that I think Hard Harry was trying to do, which is just like bring people in and say like, hey, these things are things we can talk about. These are things we're all feeling. Let's articulate them. Let's find space for them and make, you know, make those conversations more a part of the everyday and not so novel and like, you know, threatening to people. Right. And I think I always go back to like, you know, like what Marty Scorsese and Guillermo del Toro and Bong Joon-ho and like a lot of other people have said about cinema, which is that like it is meant to build empathy with your common man. Like that's the point. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we look at movies as like a two way conversation, then I do think that this movie does that very well, because I do think while it fails in terms of putting on screen a forward path that we could emulate. I do think it raises questions that other movies still now are mm. afraid to raise. Yeah. And that I think it encourages, like you said, viewers who, and I can't like, I, I don't think, I don't know how much we stress this, but like this was a movie for teenagers, you know, like there are definitely movies that have done this for adults. Like I think of killing them softly, which I think is like a perfect movie for this theme in terms of like, no, America's a business. Like, mm -hmm. you need to realize that. Um, but I think, like, in terms of this movie being pointed for teenagers, only, what, like, five years after Breakfast Club dared to say, like, you can have friends who sit at other tables at school. You know, like, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I love Breakfast Club. But, like, like you said, like, within the context of other teen cinema at this time, this was at least pushing us to have different conversations about like who you were, who did you want to be and what could you do with your time on this place? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, there are so many movies that still don't do that. So I got to respect that at least. Yeah. yeah. This one has, I think like so the sharpest bite out of, out of any teen movies. And it's just interesting too, that, you know, this is one that came out at, at the, the very, uh, beginning, you know, this is the tip of the spear in terms of these like 90s, like teen, uh, you know, fuck the system kind of movies. And they only kind of soften as we go mm -hmm. on, you know, as mm -hmm. as this sort of end of history and this neoliberal project um, gain a, a stronger foothold and and more years separate, you know, sort of the the collapse of of the Soviet Union and uh, and the 90s. And, and, and the further we get away from that thing, the further we get into this uh, Clintonite, like, third way triangulation these these messages only tend to sort of like contort and and conform more and more to uh you know uh why can't i think of the word right now 
Welcome to my life all the time. <laughs> to a demonstration and opposition, like for its own sake, like you said, right? Like right. just like the, the the right to uh, the right to push back, the right to speak your mind, the right to fight the system is is the end all be all of this thing. But but you can't stop what's coming. You can't stop its you know its all encompassing might. Um, yeah, yeah, that's an inexorable quality for sure. That is the, a good right. word. I just think every time it's like not every movie can be the wind that shakes the barley. Like sometimes I don't want to be horrendously depressed. I only want to yes. be a little bit depressed. Totally. Yes. And that's when In you watch Broken of, Arrow. Yeah. And that's why you just got to cue up Hulu and watch Travolta at his Travoltiest. Oh my gosh. He's so, he did some of his finest work with John Woo though. He really man. did. Like, I mean, after... After Pulp Fiction, just like the one-two of, of Broken Arrow and Face yeah. Off, he's having so much fun. Yeah. Well, let you me guys ask are... you guys this, though. Like, what do you think made... Do you think it's purely the soundtrack that made Pump Up the Volume, like, disappear? Because I feel like this type of movie is what you guys are into. So, like, what is your theory for its collective absence? Oh, man. We get I to have... get into conspiracy theories. Now. Uh, yeah, like, that's what I'm, I'm the, gonna... the movie that they don't want you to see. You to see. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm so, you're so on, we're, we're frequencying right now, Roxana, because I was going to bring this up. Drift compatible. I, I think what? that part of the reason this movie maybe was as like sharp as we're saying it was by comparison, like relatively speaking, is it came out of New Line, right? So it wasn't from one of the larger studios. I think that gave it a little bit more room to be, you know, it's coming from an independent independent studio. And so there's that, there's, there's that piece, which I'll, we can come back to. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's also a bit of stuff that I read about Moyle's struggles with uh, execs at the studio and producers and, and kind of like the marketing machine wanting to, strangely enough, do the thing that the movie is talking about, which is sanitize the work. And I think I read somewhere that he had like a much more morose first draft of the movie um, that was a little bit darker, much more oblique and very obscure. And they wanted to kind of like make it poppier and, and make it more accessible. And so, twofold. I think the sort of back end um, tensions between Moyle and the people that were marketing and making the movie available to people and sort of the corporatization, the commodifying of it led to just like a lot of second guessing that probably didn't give it the marketing might that it needed in order to reach the people that it needed to get to. Which brings me to my second point, which you articulated, which is that this movie was for teenagers, but it was rated R, right? Mm -hmm. And so it needed, there was this sort of like, it needed to have the marketing might to sort of penetrate that wall of getting the right people to see it. And I don't think the right people saw this movie. I think, and it's, you know, sort of ironic that that's the case because that's kind of what Hard Harry's message is doing, right? He's trying to find the people that need to hear his voice and his message and connect them to that so that they don't feel so alienated, so that they don't kill themselves, so that they, mm -hmm. you know, find find some sort of solidarity with others. And I don't think this movie was able to do that. Like, I don't think that it was able to reach the teenagers who would have, you know, 
spent money and like really been, uh, you know, a substantial consumer market for, for this message and, and this property. And when it didn't do that in the first couple of weeks, I mean, we know how it goes. Then it's like, right. We're done with you. Yeah. I think it, there was like a first wave of it being a cult classic because I don't know how old you guys are, but I'm 33. So like, I'm I think 34. there was, yeah. So I think there was like a first wave for people our age where it seems like if you discovered it, you definitely didn't see it in a theater because we were still a little bit too young for that. But I think you saw it on like UPN or the WB or like you Mm -hmm. saw it on TV. But then like, I don't know when the rights issue happened with the soundtrack, which like is such a stacked, excellent soundtrack. Yes, we definitely need to talk about that. Yeah, but I think like whenever that kicked in, I think then it probably got pulled Mm. from like syndication and from reruns. And then, yeah, like the reality is like streaming is where people discover like 90 stuff. It feels like, and again, because of those issues, like it has just been absent from streaming. It was like a miracle last year in October. It popped up on streaming on Amazon for two months. Like they didn't announce it. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't announce it. It just all of a sudden was on Prime because it was like around the same time that I was writing my piece. And I realized that it was available. And then quietly, like at the end of December, it disappeared again. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if that speaks to your point of like, because it's Warner Brothers and they released the Blu-ray, maybe it'll end up on HBO Max. But I just think it's one of those movies where, like you said, it forms that trifecta with Heathers and True Romance and I would think if you liked either of those movies you would probably like this one yeah it seems like one of the hardest to find well and one other thing you know that that you've already kind of alluded to is you know as fun as this movie is to watch it it definitely uh you know has a, a little bit more of that macabre like morose quality to it than some of these other sort of happy-go-lucky teen movies do like in empire records mm-hmm. um and yes i i agree not every movie needs to be the wind that shakes the barley you know right. and even like you know killing them softly did not do well right oh, like no. andrew dominic is like finally making his his next film after eight nine years right um and and sometimes you know that that message is one that people just like don't really want to hear. It doesn't it doesn't relate to people in sort of a feel good way when people you know often go to to the movies and 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 revisit films for that sense of uh, kind of gleeful nostalgia, right? Because there is this sort of uh, you know plasticine uh, sheen on a lot of these '90s movies, right? There's there's this very happy go lucky, very s- simplistic idea of like, uh, you know, a, a consumer culture and, and finding romance in it and, and love in the big city. Like, those are things that we like from, from you know, the rom-coms, from the teen comedies, and even, you know, sort of more subtly from, like, the action movies of, of the 90s. And, and so with this one not doing those things, I can't see, or I can see, I guess, some people avoiding it, thinking that it, it, it maybe goes there in a way that uh, people like Carly and I like, but, uh, you know, maybe maybe not other moviegoers and what i think is fascinating is like i still think of the 90s maybe as like our best movie decade in terms of variety because Mm -hmm. like yes like there were very much the like goofy absurd 
90s movies but like it also was a time for like so many of our auteurs who were just like on the come up i mean there was spike lee and tarantino and Mm -hmm. rodriguez and kevin smith and a lot of people for whom the luster has now slightly dulled but at that (laughs) time it was like holy shit like these people are coming up in this industry theaters were still in full swing so you still Mm -hmm. had like the adult thriller the adult psychosexual thriller like you had genres and (laughs) subgenres oh Oh, the days of subgenres so i almost feel like there we could also make the argument potentially that pump up the volume got lost because there was so much like Mm. and i think that that's not necessarily totally an outside of left field argument either because like when I was writing my Christian Slater piece I was like pulling up a lot of like old microfiche um, and like old scans of newspapers and it took me back to when you would look at the ad in the newspaper to see the show times at your local yeah. theater and yeah. it's like oh your theater was showing like 20 different movies so yeah. you know I, I do think they're also if I love a conspiracy theory as much as the next human but i just think there also could be the possibility that like it just got forgotten for less nefarious reasons Mm -hmm. probably still the nefarious ones but you know (laughs) it is is still like there was so much in the 90s and we just don't Mm -hmm. have that anymore i mean like we say this all the time but like this movie wouldn't get made today like nope i don't think that it would i I mean so it's at least for it being a relic of its time it's still one that i treasure very much i think you're absolutely right about the proliferation the what's what's the noun prolificness (laughs) remember how i said this happens to me all the time my life is just all of us no there was legitimately a scientific study that came out recently that said that like because we all are just interacting with like the same people over and over like our vocabularies are getting worse Oh, because God. we'll okay. just forget, okay. yeah. Because we'll just forget <laughs> words. No, I there like there's actual research being done on this right now. Roxana, thank pandemic. you. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> that makes us feel better. <laughs> it took me it took me like two hours a couple weeks ago to remember the word compound. So I was like, <laughs> I was watching Clarice and she takes on some cult or something, and I was like, what is the place where cults go? And I just couldn't remember it and then two hours later i was like oh right it's a compound like so yeah so yeah there has been we're all going crazy but like in the same way okay helpful um because i often find myself just like completely bewildered by my inability to finish a sentence i can't even go so far as to doing the yada 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 part like i can't even get there i just like make fart noises (laughs) um so but i think you're right about you know how how many movies and how many properties. And I, I often think this too about music in the nineties. We were actually just listening to a podcast and I can't remember the name of it um, where they were talking about like finding this forgotten song and sort of like the, you know, kind of like mechanisms under which some song that you heard on the radio that you know enough to know the lyrics could be lost. And, um, and it was like a really, it was a really interesting like conversation around the ephemerality of a lot of the things that were made back then because there was so much being churned out like in in multiple types of media. So I think you have a really good point there that it's maybe not um, it's not wholly because of some some nefarious actors. I also think I wanted to return to something you said in your piece 
that feels relevant too, which is this idea of, uh, you quoted Robin Williams' character in Goodwill Hunting when he says to Goodwill Hunting, to Will Hunting. But <laughs> <laughs> he says to Matt Damon. He says to Matt Damon. Um, you know, it's not your fault. And that it's this sort of like acknowledgement of the circumstances under which a person can become troubled or um, a criminal, for example, or come to experience pain in their life, that it's not, it's not an affliction, a personal affliction, oftentimes, that it is a manifestation of larger structural circumstances that you are a part of. And I, I really liked you threading that needle with this particular film, because I do feel like this movie offers us a lot of different examples of what that looks like, like goes beyond this kind of nebulous idea of teenage angst and actually gives us very explicit examples of people who are hurting or feeling challenged in some specific way that is cast societally as a personal problem, but we see very clearly is a systemic one. Um, and I just, I loved that you brought that in to the conversation about this movie, because I think that's a more nuanced part of the larger argument that we're talking about that could get lost. And um, I want to make sure we talk about it because I, I just thought it was really beautiful. And it also made me realize that not a lot of other movies do that, right? Like even when we are talking about the film's sort of capacity to speak to or not speak to the problems of a system, they also don't even necessarily acknowledge the output that it may have in the form of a human. And this movie does. And I'm so glad that you made me realize that because that is another thing that I think this movie does better than others that are proximate to it. And also just gives the movie more like pathos. Like I just felt closer to it. I felt more intimate with the experiences because, because it went there. I am I am very bad at taking praise, but that means a lot. I appreciate that very much. Um, I you know I do make this joke that Pump Up the Volume is like my most formative film, but it I, I really think it was. And writing that essay took a lot out of me because you know like when you really love something, it's harder to write about sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really love that movie, and I really love Goodwill Hunting, and so I just sort of thought that they're doing the same thing. But to your point about how so many times it feels like you're watching a movie. Like one thing I love about Pump Up the Volume is like a lot of it is just kids talking to each other. You know, like a lot of it is just conversations that might be easier to have because you are separated by a phone and because you don't really know each other, but there is some Mm. sort of shared pain or struggle or even joy that you can speak to. And again, it is still a teen movie. So we're going from economic anxiety to tons of masturbation jokes but like (laughs) they're able to pull that off really well and Mm. I think about um I don't do a ton of interviews but when Sorry to Bother You came out I interviewed Boots Riley and one thing he said yeah I mean he it was like it was very cool um 
But one thing he said that I really appreciated um, was he said, like, you know, a lot of times when you're watching a movie, you know you're watching a movie because you are watching the filmmaker's idea of what life is like. And in reality, like movies emulate other movies. So like we were talking about the rom-com genre and it's like people don't really fall in love like that. But we have been taught by movies that you do. And so like it forms this sort of feedback loop in terms of what you anticipate seeing on screen and then you do. So you're either comforted or not. And because Mm -hmm. everything is political, like you are building your own status quo or maintaining an existing status quo through film, even if you think you're not. Um, And so I think like in that terminology, like we do know that pump up the volume is upholding a status quo because it's not saying like burn down the school. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if you play it backwards, it does. It's not not saying like, you know, everything about the way that school is set up can be problematic. Like it's not saying any of those things, but in terms of like building its own language, I think it is encouraging an honesty and a challenge for us in terms of what we're willing to accept. Like, are you, are you going to accept somebody flat out lying to you and hurting you and dismissing you and all of these things in terms of like a better society? Or are you willing to say, I deserve more than that. And like my humanity Mm -hmm. is more than that. And my dignity is more than that. And so I think that like in two hours, this movie is able to pull that off. And like, I still remain in awe of that. It's uh, hmm. wow, that's a really lovely way to put that, Roxana. Oh, <laughs> said. Um, and you know, I think one of the things, though, the last thing I, I should say that we'll talk about here because we are a little long already, um, is just you know, for this film to be as effective as it is and for it to really pull it off, it has to feel authentic and like it's not, you know, uh, like a how do you do fellow kids kind of kind of thing. And and it does that incredibly well through the soundtrack, which is hands down one of the best soundtracks of the 90s if not the best soundtrack um and not just you know like in its in its you know modulation and 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 selection of great artists but uh, but the songs that it picks too right like any any film and any soundtrack that favors the UK surf b-side version of wave of mutilation over the album version from doolittle is is all right in my book and there's you know like a a, a beastie boys like cut that didn't make the album here and right. you know like a of course like the great leonard cohen is here as the theme song with everybody knows um, which is just fantastic as well but uh yeah i mean the soundtrack just rips i mean i feel like all you need to know about this movie is in the first like the first set of lyrics from everybody knows Mm-hmm. Because everybody knows the good guy lost, the good guys lost, everybody knows the fight was fixed, the poor stay poor, the rich get rich. I mean, like, that song captured so much of what this movie is about in terms of observing everything around you that feels unchangeable mm-hmm. and trying to navigate your own individual place within that. I mean, I love that song, and I don't know how better you set the tone for this movie. <laughs> through that song um i i just love the idea of like this counterculture like 90s figure just really jamming out to leonard cohen (laughs) very great incongruous image i you know i i dj'd at a college radio station of course when i was at you know my university and and the feeling of that sort of like pirate radio station with like the weird like you know mix match of of 
burn CDs and, and cassettes and handwritten labels of, you know, yeah, Pixies B-sides along with like Camper Van Beethoven and, you know, uh, Tom Waits or something like that next to it. Like that feels so authentic and real to me. And it was just one of those really, really charming um, images to see, you know, as they just sort of, you know, kind of pan down his his right. stack of, of music where you're like, oh, this guy gets it. This, is, this guy is super yeah. down. And again, like in terms of this might just speak to us because we might have been like some of the last generations to do this. But like, hell yeah. Like I remember staying up until like 11 or midnight when the radio station would switch over to like the weird stuff yeah. and like mm-hmm. queuing yep. up the cassette and like taping it off the radio station. And then like- Big time that. Yeah, like those were things you traded with your friends. I mean, mm-hmm. again- the nostalgia element of it that we, you know, that we react to so strongly because it's like we live in a time where it feels like almost everything is available, but then you lost sort of that feeling of like, this is secret and this is special and this is mine and I found it. Mm -hmm. And like, that's very much like, on the one hand, I appreciate that there is so much more accessibility. That's awesome. That's great. But I miss that sort of like, secret quality of like I found something just for me and when I choose to share it with someone it's going to be even more beautiful because mm. I chose to share it with you man okay I might need to find my dvd and watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say yeah. I also that argument applies beautifully to the film and its availability or lack thereof right. for right. us like and you're bringing and us you're into bringing it. it to us <laughs> like when you said that I was like this that's exactly the experience we had with this movie of like it feels really special because it was really formative for you and you shared it with us and suggested it for that reason and then we found it and we're like oh we get we get why she loves this movie it's so good and there there was there is something that makes it feel more special because we had such a hard time finding it. And, um, and because, you know, we didn't have a lot of our own experience with it um, prior to that. I think you're totally right. I also think that the, the soundtrack in particular does a really good job of showing um, and whether this is purposeful or not, I took this away from, from this, you know, all of the different genres of music and and different artists that are used in the movie and utilized to brilliant effect, for me, that just showcased how pervasive and cutting across different spheres and circles of people, this feeling of angst and malaise, dissent, unrest, whatever you want to call it, that like it shows up in a Beastie Boys track, it shows up in a 1988 Leonard Cohen cut, like it's, it's you know, shows up in songs that are from uh, the anti-war movement of the 1960s. Like right. all of the songs that are used in this movie, that's a through line that runs through them. And that was actually really comforting to me because it felt representative it felt more representative of a lived experience where you know we all have these feelings to a certain degree and we express them differently because we're coming from a different background or you know have a different set of personal circumstances that lead us to communicate a certain type of thing in a certain type of way but that there is this unifying thread this feeling that we all feel as humans that connects us across genres, across classes, potentially across races. And, um, and I really liked that about the soundtrack that it's, 
you can see that very expressly in in the music itself. That all of these songs talk hard. All, all of these, these songs, songs talk hard. Yes, you nailed yeah, it. That... You said that in about five words, and I said it in like <laughs> 400. That's that's what podcasting will do to you. Then. Um, well, I think that that is an awesome place for us to just sort of wrap up here. Um, the film, again, is Pump Up the Volume. Hopefully by the time you're listening to this, you can find a copy of it and watch it for yourself if you have never, or if it's just been a while. Um, Roxana Haddadi, thank you again so much for being here. This has been a wonderful conversation. One Such of my a favorites pleasure. so far. As a reminder, you can uh, follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Um, subscribe to us at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. We're giving all of those proceeds uh, indefinitely to Hotels Not Hospitals, an organization here um, partnered with the DSA to uh, help our unhoused San Francisco neighbors and keep roofs over their heads. So uh, if you have the means, please consider donating there. You'll get some exclusive content uh, as well as uh, you'll be helping out some, some folks who really, really need it. Um, shout out to our capitalist overlord, Linda, and we will see you next time. Thanks, guys. 